welcome to the Michael Rothstein Show live from Regents Field, Ann Arbor's true sports bar at 204 Main Street in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Regents Field also happens to be home of this podcast. Come on down and check out a future episode taping live on Tuesday nights. I'm your host, ESPN reporter, world traveler, and grandma's Michigana, Michael Rothstein, and this is a podcast where we discuss the Detroit Lions, the NFL, and whatever else is going on in the world of football. And boys, there are a lot to talk about this week, so let's get right to it. That last second, 23-22 Lions loss to Green Bay on Monday Night Football. And, man, I don't even know where to start exactly except for one spot, and that is the officiating with Cleet Blakeman's crew. It's been the story of the game on Monday night, both in those last few minutes and then overnight into Tuesday and then all day Tuesday as Troy Vincent, the head, one of the NFL's head honchos when it comes to officiating, said that that second Trey Flowers illegal hands to the face penalty should not have been called. Then there was the first illegal – a legal hand to the face penalty by Trey Flowers, which was the first time in his entire NFL career that he had been called for a legal hand to the face. So I'll take you inside the locker room here for a second. He was the only player still with his pads on when the media came into the locker room late Monday night in Green Bay. He was sitting there, and he was ready and waiting to talk. And I think he still wore his pads because he wanted to show exactly what was going on. He grabbed at his pads multiple times to say, listen, when I do this move, it's a move I've done all the time. I grab here, and then after the first call, I even adjusted and moved here. And he was confused as to why it was a penalty, and it turns out a day later that he was right. And here's the thing when it comes to the officiating. If you know me at all, if you follow me from Twitter, if you've read my stuff, you know I do not blame officiating for pretty much anything. I think it's a loser's lament. I think it's just a poor way to go because – in any play, in any situation, or almost any situation, blaming the officials is just, it's just not good. Uh, officials make mistakes too, for sure, but more often than not, they are right. They were not right on Monday night, so let's just be very clear about that. They were not right at all. They made multiple mistakes throughout the evening, and some of the calls that they made, yeah, I understand them. Like Tracy Walker's unnecessary roughness on the first play of the third quarter, that was a call that had to happen. The onus, as Matt Patricia said, as Cleet Blakeman said, the, the referee after the game, that is on, the onus is on Tracy Walker to make sure that he's not making contact. Walker was extremely angry after the game. He used the word awful five times in, I don't know, about 90 seconds to describe that call and describe the officiating. He may have a future fine coming his way. We'll see how the NFL handles that. But he was right in some of the calls. That call, at the end of the day, he's a young player. He has to understand the onus is on him. He can't make that contact, even though he actually got under Geronimo Allison. It was a really interesting play because very rarely do you see a defensive player going for the ball, which Tracy Walker said he was doing, go underneath the defensive player and trying to do it. So he might not have seen Geronimo Allison at all, but the way the rules are set up, that's still on the defensive player. But there's a lot more to unpack here, too. For the second straight game, there was uh, maybe could have been called, maybe could not pass interference on Marvin Jones going down the field. I actually asked Daryl Bevel about that on Tuesday, whether he feels pass interference is being called differently this year and he just said he feels like it's not being called at all and here's the thing if you're a receiver if you're a quarterback if you're an offense you have to know that and most head coaches know it it's why you don't see the challenge flag coming out for pass interference because the way the league has set up the rule at this point it just doesn't 
do any good. Sure, they put that out there that, yes, you can challenge pass interference calls, but they've made it so hard to overturn. And frankly, to me at least, it seems like referees are kind of swallowing the whistle a little bit and letting guys play a little bit more when it comes to pass interference. That if you're an offensive player, you have to understand that that's what's going on and that's maybe what's going to happen here. And I asked Bevel as well, hey, do you tell your receivers to approach things differently, kind of knowing how pass interference is being called this year? He said, no, it kind of depends on how the ball's thrown, what the route is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, no, but he was pretty adamant multiple times to saying he does not believe pass interference is being called much this year. And you've seen that now twice in the last two games on Marvin Jones. And then, of course, there are the two illegal hands to the face penalties that we talked about earlier and Trey Flowers on both of those calls. It was borderline at best, especially on the first call. The second call, as Troy Vincent said, not at all a call. But here's the thing with that, and this is where we're going to transition from the officiating, which, like I said, was awful. And the NFL needs to do something about that. Let's also make that pretty clear. The NFL has to take some sort of stand when it comes to officiating, whether it's kind of more being more public with their rebukes of bad calls of bad officiating because while the Lions got bit with it this week it's been a problem all year long in the NFL you see it every week you hear about it every week and it's something that the league really needs to address it sounds like they did address it a little bit with the competition committee at this week's owners meetings but they have to figure out something in the offseason to make it better I don't know what that answer is I've seen some people talk about maybe a sky judge I covered the Alliance of American Football which used that a little bit but it was only to limited effect, really, that I felt like it was helpful. And you kind of run into some other problems when you do that as well. The New York situation with Al Rivera, and I don't know how well that's working at this point either. I think right now, if I'm the NFL in the offseason, I look at everything when it comes to how you're looking at what referees are doing, the penalty, the penalty process, and really take a hard look at what you can maybe do differently I don't have the answers I'll be the first person to say that I just don't know what they can do at this point I think there are multiple options but it's something they have to look at and that's not only because of what happened to the Lions on Monday night it's because of what's going on all year long in the NFL and we'll get to that a little bit more with our guest tonight Courtney Cronin the ESPN Minnesota Vikings reporter beyond the officiating Let's look at the rest of this. And before actually, sorry, before we get off of that topic, I want to go to one more thing, and that's how Matt Patricia and some of the other players handled this entire thing. And I thought they handled it pretty well. Tracy Walker was obviously very outspoken. He called it awful. Trey Flowers took a more analytical approach and really you know, showed what he was doing and why he kind of had an issue with it. But the way Matt Patricia handled it was exactly how he should listen. I know you want him to come out off fire and brimstone but that does him no good that does his team no good because they're on a short week they're playing minnesota on sunday is a game frankly that they have to have if they want to stay in the divisional race at the very least and the last thing that he needs is his team seeing him get worked up over it him get all blustery and angry about it because then the players will see that and then whatever message he's saying privately will perhaps come over publicly and then it becomes a theme for the week and Matt Patricia is really trying to avoid that especially on a short week so when you're looking at how he handled with just saying listen they need to focus on the penalties that they can fix like the 12 men on the field and some of the other issues that they've had like false starts 
and you can focus on those things and you can work on those things and get better on those things. He can't fix what happened in Green Bay. Getting mad about it will do no one any good at this point. And it's different than the 2014 playoff call, which the NFL, if you remember the Anthony Hitchens pass interference, not pass interference, picked up flag situation against Dallas. That was different because the Lions lost that game. Their season was over. Jim Caldwell could really get angry. And if you remember, he actually spoke out and he actually, for him at least, got pretty perturbed about it. There was no next game for them. So he could afford to do that and afford to really speak his mind. Matt Patricia at this point in the season can't because if you do that, you really maybe lose focus on what you have to do, which is play against Minnesota. And you don't want your players to get distracted by that because if Matt Patricia doesn't make a big deal of it, which he did, which he didn't really do on Tuesday, the story maybe goes away by the end of Wednesday versus if Matt Patricia makes it a thing, then it goes in a Thursday, Friday, your players are being asked about it. And while I'm someone who doesn't believe that really media talking is any sort of distraction, you just, from a messaging standpoint, want the message to be, and that's really what Matt Patricia, I felt, was trying to do on Tuesday. You want the messaging to be that you're focusing on the Vikings, not worrying about what happened against the Packers 24 hours earlier. So what does this mean for the division? Well, Green Bay is in control of it right now, and then everything else is really up in the air because you've got Minnesota, Chicago, Detroit, all kind of muddied behind the Packers at 5-1. and one. So there's a lot of football left to be played. The Lions have 11 games left, and what you can really see is a lot can change. We've seen that in the past throughout December's and November's in, in years past when the Lions have had divisional leads towards the end of game, towards the end of seasons, and then they've lost it because they've lost games or they've ended up playing for the division title towards the end of the year. So this loss is bad for the Lions when it comes to dealing with the division. When it comes to everything else, I think the Lions are still completely in play. Now let's look at really what's gone on on the field here. So now really if we look more at what actually happened in the game that led to the situation at the end of the game. The Lions had two major issues, and the first was the red zone offense. The Lions, I know this is, again, a lament that probably you don't want to hear, but if they had scored touchdowns and kept, instead of settling for field goals, I have no problem with the two deep field goals that Matt Prater kicked. Like, you, you take those. But three times the Lions got within the Green Bay 30, and they kicked field goals on three of those possessions, including twice inside the red zone. And you have to be better there. You need to convert at least one of those, especially because you know Green Bay is going to mount some sort of attack. And in some cases, you could have really put that game away and put it out of reach if you score touchdowns instead of field goals early on in that game. So red zone offense right now, you really need to be a little bit concerned about what the Lions are able to do there and where they're going. And tied in with that is kind of what Daryl Bevel's offense looks like after he's done scripting plays. He's been fantastic when he's scripted plays. And you saw that really from the jump because that first play on Monday night, the flea flicker, that was a pure scripted play. And it went for 66 yards. And then the first play of the second possession was a massive deep shot to Marvin Hall. Another big play. We all know Matthew Stafford is incredibly good when he takes deep shots. So the problem, though, is that when they go off script, the Lions do struggle, and it's been a big problem for them. And when I say off script, I mean when they're done scripting their 15 plays. Daryl Bevel is phenomenal when he's doing that, but it still feels like there is a feeling out process when they are 
deeper in games when they're needing to adjust and when they're needing to maybe get some of those big plays. He's done well in some instances in kind of those kill shot plays when they have to have it in key third downs, even though they haven't necessarily converted. The play call has generally looked pretty good. But you have to be concerned at this point if if you are the Lions, what the offense looks like after the scripted plays by Daryl Bevel. When he is scripting plays, though, he's been fantastic. Every week that there is a game, we'll have this small little segment. It's the star of the week and the slouch of the week. This week's star of the week, Justin Coleman. He had an interception that was perfectly timed off Darius Shepard's helmet. He also racked up five tackles and had three passes defended. The free agent signing looked like he was struggling this preseason. People were really questioning it. There was a chance at least, and I thought it was a very, 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 very small chance, but a chance nonetheless that he may not even win that starting nickel job now. He may be Detroit's best defensive player at the moment and one of the top nickel corners in the league. He's been fantastic every week, and he's this week's star of the week after making a huge play against Green Bay and continuing to just be a complete nuisance for opposing defenses. And then there's the slouch of the week. And there are definitely some candidates here, including Carryon Johnson, who had 2.6 yards per carry, and maybe even a little bit with some of Daryl Bell's play calling. But I think we all know where this is going. The slouch of the week are the officials. Anytime you have the league say you missed a critical call, they had to basically say, yeah, we're going to call the owner, we're going to call the general manager and essentially apologize. You're having a bad week. It's not going well for you. Umpire Jeff Rice, the rest of Cleet Blakeman's, Blakeman's crew, you are the slouch of the week. And things need to improve overall in the NFL, as we were talking about before, when it comes to officiating. They need to figure something out, whether it's penalties, whether it's full-time officials, whether it's a better development system for more officials. And that was something that the Alliance of American Football was potentially going to be able to do. We'll see how the XFL maybe handles that as the XFL draft is going on between Tuesday and Wednesday. So that's going to be something to pay attention to in the offseason as well. But the officiating, you get the slouch of the week, and we'll see what happens next week when they play Minnesota. We'll be back in a moment with our guest, ESPN Vikings reporter Courtney Cronin. Like last week with Rob Domofsky, Courtney will join us as both the beat writer of the week and the main guest for the remainder. the Minneapolis by City Pages earlier this year, blankets the Vikings on television, radio, and digitally for ESPN. And now she's here with us on episode two of the Michael Rothstein Show. Courtney, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And let's, before we jump into Lions Vikings, I figure I know where I'm going to go with this. Last night, major problems between the Lions and Packers, not necessarily with anything that happened between, with the two teams themselves, but the officiating. You've been around the league for a few years. Where do you feel like the state of officiating is right now? Because I was talking about it at the top of the program, and it seems like the Lions, Packers, that was bad. I mean, you know, Troy Vincent had to come out and say, hey, they made a mistake. It's bad. But it seems like week in, week out, this is happening more often in the league this year. Am I crazy for thinking that? Or do you really feel like this is a league-wide problem at this point? I mean, I think it's something that's gotten out of control where you have explanations coming out from New York, uh, what seems like every single week there's a blown call and then you see a tweet that has some polluted, hard to understand, scratch your head type uh, reasoning from Alberto Riveron. And uh, it doesn't 
make it any easier. Like, yeah, the league will come out and say, hey, we screwed up, or this is why this play was called, this penalty was called. And I think it's hurting the game. Like, we can talk about CTE and concussions and head injuries as being, you know, one of the four foremost problems in the NFL today, but that's not driving, that's not going to drive people away. I think what's driving fans away or, you know, outcomes like what we saw in, in Green Bay last night. And I know, you know, the team that I cover, the Vikings were, um, you know, dealt kind of a similar hand in week two when a touchdown was negated by an offensive pass interference uh, that we really didn't understand all that much um, in game, after game, uh, in the days after it, like it was just, you know, such a bizarre call. Um, And I think that it's hurting the integrity of the game because whether it's the pass interference rule, which now there's been, what is it, 20 of 21 have have not been overturned. It's been called 21 times and only one time has it actually been overturned. Like, what's the point? Like, what are we doing here when, you know, coaches are kind of getting in like that gun-shy mindset that they're afraid to call it because they know that it's not going to get overturned by and large. So I think we're in a really weird time. And I do think it is fixable, but this always happens. Like last year, this happened with the um, roughing the passer rule where weeks one through seven, it was called all the time. And then the league started to let up on it a little bit and they were just finding guys. So to me, maybe that's what happens as we get further along the season, but right now it's a problem. And I think that with the Lions Vikings game coming up this week, um, you know, just coming off of what happened in that Monday night game, the stakes are going to be that much higher uh, for both teams, just given kind of what's happened in the division right now, games for the Vikings, for the Lions and, um, you know, being decided by these calls and like where the Packers are at five and one. I mean, it really could hinder the division race when we look back at it. Oh, there's no doubt about it. It's interesting because like some fans I've been interacting with, I'm sure you probably have this in week two. I mean, my Twitter is my Twitter mentions have been aflame for, I don't know, 24 or 36 hours at this point. I, I can't even keep track anymore. It was like overnight, even I got in my 90 minutes of sleep Monday night and a Tuesday before I caught my flight. I just kept hearing my phone and this is my fault for not turning the ringer off. It was like, bing, bing, bing. It was like over and over and over again because fans are angry. And that, what you're talking about with hurting the product is fans get angry enough and they're going to walk away. Like one guy I was interacting with today, he was like, you know, I just think I'm going to take a break. And I was like, if it's not giving you joy or fulfillment, this is all the end of the day is supposed to be entertainment for fa- from a fan perspective. And if you're not enjoying it or being entertained, what are you doing? And to me, the NFL has to be worried about that because if every week it's something akin to what we saw on Monday night, that's a, like you said, a major problem. And I don't really know. I think it, maybe it's fixable, but I don't know if it's fixable in the short term. I think it's something that they really need to. And I was talking about up at the top of the broad, top of the show that I think it's something they really need to look at the entire officiating system they have in the off season and really maybe make some hard decisions about what they do and how they do it down the road. Uh, hopefully, for both of our sakes and for the Lions' sake and the Vikings' sake, our sakes from more of a writing perspective and an understanding perspective, none of that happens this week when the Lions, when the Vikings come to Detroit to play the Lions. And when you look at this Vikings team, I think the first question, especially for people in Michigan, is what's going on with Kirk Cousins in this offense? They obviously signed Kirk Cousins to a fully guaranteed deal a year ago, and it seems like it's been either really, really good or really, really bad this year for Kirk Cousins. Yeah, in these last two weeks, it almost looks like they've got it completely sorted out, right? Like, they go to New York, they have the balance. They have Dalvin 
and the, and the running backs go for over 200 yards rushing and, you know, Thielen did what he did with Cousins and Diggs was involved just a little bit. Um, so they finally had like the, the philosophy, fulfilling that philosophy of balance. And then this past week um, against a really good run defense that honestly sold out for Dalvin Cook, like they, they were loading the box left and right and, and just leaving um, the back end so vulnerable to the passing attack. And I think that, you know, we finally saw what happens when you use your two really good receivers. Um, you know, it's, a, it's an offense that had 2,000-yard receivers in it last year, and I think that most times in the NFL, that's what you're going to have to do to win games. Like, you're not just going to be able to uh, pound the ball uh, on teams, especially teams with really good defenses that, you know, aren't one-dimensional. Um, you can use Dalvin Cook in a number of different ways, more than just on the ground. I mean, he's, he's great in the short passing game, and I really do think that they've got such a versatile threat uh, between a number of different options uh, offensively. And, and a lot of that, you know, to Kirk's credit, he's really turned it around these past two weeks. I think it's been better offensive line protection, um, better play calling, better design. I mean, it's kind of all gone hand in hand to where you've seen – um, what they were able to do on the road to get their first road win of the year and against an Eagles team that, you know, was widely considered among the favorites in the NFC. I mean, I don't know if many people still are looking that way or having that team trend that way now in, in week going into week seven just because of how bad their secondary is due to injury. But, like, they've strung together two pretty good weeks. Now it's like, okay, you're going against a Stack defense with a really good secondary and I think it's like the next big test after like putting these three weeks together is like find your formula for can you actually be balanced yes you can can you do it like when can you actually ignite a passing attack when they're going to take away the threat of your run yes you can and you can also wear them down with the run at the end of the game now this week do it against a really good defense that you know is not going to be as vulnerable uh in on their in their back seven as Philly was now, some of the offensive struggles that you were talking about, like you said, figuring out a way to use the very talented Stefan Diggs and Adam Thielen, is some of that you think Kevin Stefanski just getting used to being a full-time offensive coordinator and, and kind of learning the kind of what happens when teams get a book on you and, and really figure you out a little bit, or was it something maybe deeper? Well, I think that that's part of it. Um, I think the offensive line, the, the pass pros been good these past two weeks. Uh, they've, they've been using a lot heavier personnel groupings, like a lot of 21 personnel, some 12, um, even some 22 sprinkled in there where they're using tight ends mostly as run blockers uh, and, you know, using them to max protect on the offensive line. And that's helped. Like how that translates against Detroit I don't know yet because it's something I just don't think you can go to the well on every single day um but you sparingly it's worked and I do believe that um you know the role that Kevin Stefanski and Gary Kubiak have had in kind of melding this offensive philosophy we knew it was going to take some time I mean Stefanski's waited around a very long time in Minnesota to get this job. I mean, he's in his 14th season. He got the job after John Filippo was fired 15 games, 15 weeks into the season last year. Um, and I think that, you know, with that comes kind of flushing out, like, what do I want to call? What's our identity? But also mixing in what Mike Zimmer wants. I mean, he's made it very clear he wants a run-first mentality, whether – and he's not going to ever tell you that first. He's going to tell you we want to run the ball effectively. But 
just given kind of the way things went early in the season, like that's reflecting upon what the head coach wants. Like he's, you know, the whole thing that was made such a big deal in Atlanta or against Atlanta was that Kirk threw 10 passes. Well, if you can wear a team down with a run and you can just like, you know, take them out of the game by just running the ball down their throats, why wouldn't you? Um, but then again, the other side of that is, okay, what does it say about Kirk Cousins that you only want him to throw 10 passes? Like, I think that was a completely overblown argument uh, because run the clock, like time of possession is your friend, field position is your friend, your defense is going to close out the game. At the end of the day, that's the identity of a Mike Zimmer team, and that's how it's going to be going forward. But he also knows that they're going to have to win games the way that they did against the Eagles if they want to be competitive, if they want to make a playoff push. Right, absolutely. And I think everybody knows, listen, Mike Zimmer's calling card, as cliche as that phrase is, is defense. And he's built some very impressive units, typically up until really last year, have been the top unit in the NFC North as long as he's been there. Where would you say this year's iteration of Mike Zimmer's defense maybe compares to some of those other groups? Because it still seems like they have a large majority of those same cast of characters that, that people are familiar with, Everson Griffin and Harrison Smith and so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the defensive line. Like, I think the big question with Griffin, just to step was is he going to be the same version of himself at almost 32 years old as he was as a pro bowler? And the version of what we're seeing of him right now is as good, if not potentially having a trajectory to be better than he was in his pro bowl years from 15 to 17. So that's a great sign. Um, Daniil Hunter's a monster. I mean, the I don't know the exact stat off my head, but it's something like there's never been a player who's had more sacks by the age of 25 than Hunter. Um, and he's just scratching the surface of how good he can be, which is really scary uh, when you think about it. But I think the defense right now is ranked somewhere about seventh, which sounds about right. Like that is – it could be as good as a top three defense, but where they're at right now, and I think that that will balance out when they do go against teams like Kansas City and Dallas and teams that really like to throw the ball and have a lot of weapons. But, you know, they've kept this core together for so many years. Uh, and this probably will be one of the last years that they're able to do it. Because if you think about what happens next year, you're probably going to try to either restructure or let Xavier Rhodes walk because his cap hits really high. Um, you know, with, with Trey Waynes, there's no guarantee that you're going to even be able to afford to keep him or let him hit free agency. Same with Mackenzie Alexander. Um, and then you kind of have like your second coming at cornerback with Mike Hughes and Holton Hill eventually primed to fill in some full-time roles. So, you know, this is a one year that this defense is going to look the way it did in 2017. Um, and it might be their last shot to get this thing done. And I think that it looks – I mean, they, they've definitely added some new wrinkles in it with like Mike's, uh, you know, double A gap blitz and, and adding some different looks even in with that. I mean, that's what he's known for, but they've become like a really heavy, aggressive blitzing team. Um, and they've done some really cool things, just kind of trying to be more exotic with some of their coverages. So it seems like they, I wouldn't say they reinvent the wheel, but they're constantly adding new things into it, but it still is that same group uh, that you saw reach the NFC championship game two years ago. Considering how they, for the most part, historically have really beaten up Matthew Stafford, too. I mean, I can remember him in the bowels of stadiums needing his ribs looked at and barely being able to walk. Yeah. The, the whole deal. I mean, is, is that maybe more scary for him this, this week than maybe 
prior years because, like you said, there being more exotic in coverages. So he may need that extra half a beat as talented and as experienced as he is to diagnose it. And if they're still blitzing like they are, that would seem to be very problematic for a quarterback who they know pretty well. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that just with – I mean, go back and watch the game plan that they had for Daniel Jones. I mean, they were so aggressive with the way that they blitzed him. Um, and, you know, they know that Stafford's kind of like Rodgers in that sense where he has this, like, escapability that is just otherworldly. You just don't see it. You see it with, like, Russell Wilson, Aaron Rodgers, and Matthew Stafford. They're so good at improvising. They're so good on the run. Um, and once he escapes the pocket, he's going to make a play. So I think that following a similar game plan to what they did with Rodgers in week two, probably not that far-fetched. I mean, they are totally different quarterbacks. Don't get me wrong on that. But I do think that, you know, the way they the way that they game plan for Rodgers was, uh, you know, they had a good plan for him because they slowed him down. I mean, outside of those those first three drives that Green Bay had, and they were trying – like the Vikings were back on their heels trying to figure it out. After that point, that offense was not the same. So I do think that given kind of the trial and error that they've had so far, and I mean, how many years of experience Mike Zimmer's had against Matthew Stafford, that they will have a really aggressive plan for Sunday. And when it comes to the Vikings, at least just lastly with the team, before we get into some other stuff, Stefan Diggs, happier, content, still kind of up in the air? Where, where does he stand after three touchdowns? While Diggs will come out and say what he said last week, that we all misconstrued it, um, and, you know, that the whole thing was blown out of proportion. Like, they're, people don't report things about unhappiness brewing behind the scenes and, and things like that if it's not accurate, myself included. So I definitely uh, think that it's all's well that ends well with wins as of right now, but it's certainly a situation to keep your eye on because what happens if they start losing games again? Is he going to skip practice and get meetings? I mean, he's already been fined $200,000. It's a very expensive temper tantrum to throw if you're truly not trying to get anything out of it, potentially a trade, things like that. So the way that I look at it um, is that, you know, it's far from being over and solved. Like, is he on this team at this time next year? Maybe, maybe, maybe they decided, maybe there was something that went on and behind the scenes say, Hey, we realize you're frustrated. We realize limitations of your quarterback. Cause that seems like what the real problem is. Um, but like, let's try to keep things even keel for now. And then, you know, we'll, we'll reevaluate it in the off season. It's just a situation to keep your eye on. I would definitely not look past this at all uh it's definitely not solved i mean wins will wins will cover up a lot of things but if they start losing and things start going south then i think we might see see like where the situation actually is other than just the kumbaya that's happened with them winning two straight games (laughs) that's that's a good way to put it and kind of so part of this podcast we we'd like to look at things away from the field as long as well as kind of what's going on specifically the matchup and I'm curious, I, I, we know each other pretty well, and you and I have similar paths in some ways. You got to ESPN much younger than I did, but you started in the Midwest, you went to the Deep South, you went to the West Coast, now you're, is it above freezing still in Minneapolis? I, I really don't know. Like, what drew you to this business in the first place and, and kind of your path from kind of the start to ESPN? Yeah, I, um, you know, I, I 
starts back in high school for me. Like, it's funny that it goes all the way back. Um, I, I did sports radio in high school because originally I wanted to be a doctor. And I, I was really good in biology. I was really good at chemistry. And then I got to physics. And it was like, I'm not going to be able to pass this class. <laughs> so I kind of realized my, my path at that point. I was like, well, I better find something else to, to be good at um, or at least try to be good at. So my high school was just one of those you know, the school has like 3,000 kids in a pretty affluent area. Um, they had radio station, they had a TV station, they had a newspaper. And I put all of my efforts into broadcast at first, which it's funny now looking back at it, like I didn't start writing in high school, like outside of classes and things like that. Like I didn't start writing for the student newspaper until um, like my second semester senior year. And it's kind of, that's kind of always been the path that I followed. Like when I went to Indiana for, for college, like I did student TV. I did, you know, I had a number of different internships with online entities like 247 Sports and, and the Fox station there. Like I didn't write. I didn't start writing until I technically was quote unquote a professional on uh, my first real job in Mississippi, um, which I got down there as a sports videographer. And then, you know, about a year in, uh, there was an opportunity for me to take over the recruiting beat in high schools. Um, and I was afforded, I, you know, I kind of just had to learn on the fly, learn from, you know, the other professionals that I was surrounded with. So it was an awesome experience. I really enjoyed that. And, and like, I've, I don't know, I've never gone outside this career path. This has always just been like what I've known and what I've stuck with. It's so I'm curious what tripped you up in physics? Because like, for me, it was, Oh, like my parents and I really thought, law and being a lawyer or being an actor was kind of the thing or, or maybe being on tv and then i couldn't do camera turns from camera one to camera two uh my freshman year of college and that was the end of that i looked like a velociraptor it was really really bad like it was just horrible it was like i was doing the thriller dance every time only without the hands and it was just awful but for you what was it with physics like what was it that tripped you up was it like a theory or something or was it just like physics overall you just couldn't grasp it it's just I just could not grasp it. Like same thing with econ in college. I think I got like my lowest grade ever, which was like a D like in like macroeconomics, which was like a 400 person class. And I don't do well in those settings to begin with. Like I need one-on-one -on -one learning attention. Like I'm a very tactile learner. So like I need to touch, smell, see, hear, use all my senses, like and not be an auditory learner. So I think that had something to do with it, but it was tough. Like, I mean, I just, you know, physics and, and, you know, the laws of motion and all that stuff, that's way over my head. So you get to Northern California and you're doing a little bit of everything there. And you, I, the, the one story to me that really stood out that you did, and I remember when you were first hired and I, you know, because we didn't know each other all that well before you had gotten the job at ESPN. And I remember, you know, just kind of whenever they had a new hire, I'd always Google be like, oh, what did this person do? And I saw your piece on Kevin Durant when he went back to Oklahoma City. But you mm -hmm. did a little bit of everything. What was the adjustment for you from that yeah. catch-all person being as, whether it was covering recruiting in high schools or doing everything in Northern California to really being a beat person covering one team? Like, what was that adjustment? And, and how, how difficult was that for you from kind of being, having those shallow amounts of everything to a deep knowledge of one thing? Well, I think it actually was the best thing I've ever done because at that point I was kind of, gearing towards burnout of doing you know 
a little bit of everything. I mean, it sounds great in theory, and it is because you love to be able like I, I moved from Warriors to Raiders, 49ers to spring training back to Warriors, and it was kind of this cyclical thing that I just would go from one to the next to the next. Um, and really, I hadn't been able to sink my teeth into a beat ever. I mean, when I, when you're covering high schools and recruiting in, in Mississippi, it's Ole Miss, it's Mississippi State, it's Southern Miss, it's Alabama, it's Auburn. I mean, it's the entire SEC. Like you're making your, it's a good thing. You're kind of have like a, I guess like a regional approach where you know, you know, a bunch of different coaches and sources and things like that. So that's important. But to really be able to go to the same place every single day, get to know a locker room of 63 guys, um, and an entire coaching staff and, you know, support staff, per, you know, front office, like that takes time to build those relationships. And I think that, you know, it was such a good opportunity for me uh, to make the jump into having one beat in a, in a league that I really have. I mean, the NFL is kind of all, it's not all I've ever known, but it's really what I've focused on for the last three years of my career because the NBA um, you know, I was out in, I was in like the Bay Area during a really interesting time for the Warriors because the first year I got there, they were 73 and nine, uh, and then they lost the finals to the Cavs with the, you know, the Kyrie shot over Curry and the Iguodala block. Like, so there's that year, and there's all this fallout, and then to get KD right away, and it's like, boom, we're right back into it, and it just felt like the N the NBA was like this never ending thing. Um, and honestly, the NFL was kind of a break for me, like <laughs> when I would go straight from Warriors into that, which is kind of crazy, considering the landscape of when I was out there was the Colin Kaepernick stuff was going on in, in Santa Clara. So I'd go from that two days a week up to up to Alameda to cover the Raiders who went uh, 12 and they, they won 12 games that year. So, I mean, it was it was insane. Like we had you know, we had such a good time, uh, the people I worked with and just kind of that season that really opened up. That was my first experience with the NFL in 2016. And, and I wouldn't change that for anything because it put me on a path. Did, did that experience in California maybe change your approach to the storytelling and how you do things? Um, I think I've always kind of had that approach, like try to think outside the box, try to think about something that nobody else is doing, because in a way I always had to fight for my content out there. Like I wasn't a traditional writer. I was a multimedia journalist. So you can't tell, you know, the same type of stories that you would through print necessarily in the same way that you would, um, you know, a video platform. So I think that just kind of having the video experience in general, and how I would tell stories that way has helped me kind of look at things a little differently because I never, I was never a writer. Like I never was not by trade, like not by, I wasn't trained that way either. Like I had to learn on the fly and learn from people around me. And maybe that's just my path, but I think it worked out really well because there are things I'm still learning because I didn't really learn it in a conventional manner where I wrote for the student newspaper at Indiana and got you know, internships with USA Today or the New York Times, like so many of my colleagues, uh, like college colleagues did, um, you know, I think it really worked out for me the best where, you know, it was an untraditional winding path, but it got me to where I want to be. I was going to say, so for you, I mean, is the writing still maybe the, the part you're learning the most over some of the video stuff you do and, and, some, and obviously the radio stuff that you've been doing more and more of? Is that, is that still kind of, even though, theoretically that's the main part of your job still where you're like man i have the the most room to grow 
Yeah, I think so. I think that I'm still constantly learning. Uh, I read my colleagues all the time. I read a lot uh, just to see like, you know, how people are doing it. Like, I think it's, I think you only get better by reading and consuming and trying to find your voice. Uh, You never have it at this age. I think that any Anybody who, you know, acts like, oh, they've made it in their, like, late 20s or figured it out. Like, you have so much longer to go. Like, I don't know when I'll find my voice entirely uh, through writing, but I love the trial and error process. I love the editing process. I love being able to bounce ideas off of my editors and my colleagues and figuring out what's the best way to tell this story Um, and, and trying to figure out, okay, how can I go deeper with subject? How can I tell this in a way that it hasn't been told before? Because if you're not growing, you're staying in a, plat- a state of plateau. And that's kind of the scariest part for writers, because I think that that's where we get writer's block and we just become dull and desensitized to our environment. And maybe that comes through in our storytelling. And I certainly never would want to be that. But, um, you know, it, it's always something I'm constantly learning. Like, I, I want to read more. Like, I, I constantly find myself wanting to read things outside of sports. Uh, and I think that that will help me in the long run become a better writer because I'm still, I've got such a long way to go. What are you reading now? What am I reading now? Well, I actually have the book right here. I'm in my kitchen. It's called, I've got two books that I'm, well, two non-football books. I have another football book that I'm reading, but um, there's a book called Starting Over. It's a series of short stories by this Southern author named Elizabeth Spencer. Um, I was a big fan of Eudora Welty when I was in Mississippi. Um, you know, she's she's still such a dynamic voice down there. Everybody thinks of, you know, Ernest Hemingway and kind of the, you know, the impact that he had in the South, but Eudora was just as much of a badass, if not more so, uh, just from the woman's perspective of what she was doing. Um, So this woman was inspired by her and uh, I'm reading her book now and it's really good. And then an old favorite is The Stranger by Albert Camus. Um, I picked it back up a few months ago and put it down and then picked it up again. And it's, it's good. I mean, I've, I've read it a few times, but it's, it's one of those existential books you can never go wrong with. Is that your all time favorite book? No, probably not. I don't know if I have an all time favorite, but it, um, I, I started reading it when I was in still in Indiana. It was when I was interning at the NCAA because I believe the movie, the pianist with Adrian Brody, um, at the beginning of the movie, he, it was one of uh, the famous quotes from, from The Stranger uh, that popped up, and it was just so profound that I was like, man, I want to read that book wherever that came from. And so I, I went to a rare bookstore and found it translated from French, and then I lost that copy, and then I got this other one a few months ago. Hey, that's sometimes how it goes. So. I, I was just said, my, my favorite book is Let the Great World Spin. It's by Colin McCann. And- I legitimately like have that book and I know where it is on my bookshelf at all times. And it will, I will never let it move because if I lose that copy, I'll just be so annoyed and I have to go buy another one. Like I'm just so particular about that. Are you, are you a Kindle person or are you like somebody that actually needs that? Physical I need, like, I need to person. have my, uh, me too. I need my, um, my like highlighter and my pen to annotate. Like I always, even when I'm sitting on my couch, like doing casual reading, I always have a pen close by so I can underline things like I I'm not great with an iPad I don't own an iPad I have my MacBook and that's it like I 
don't want a Kindle. I don't want an iPad. Like I just, I like being able to like physically touch it. Like I don't read newspapers. I'm not somebody who like will pick up a newspaper, has to have like a copy of the newspaper every day. Cause I read that on my phone. Um, but books are different. There's something about it that like, I just want to feel it. I want to smell it. I want to touch it. I want to like feel accomplished by being able to put down at the end be like, I just read 200 pages in an evening. Like that's awesome to me. Oh, absolutely. I feel very similarly, similarly to you in that. But for me also, it's we as journalists st- spend so much time staring at screens, whether it's on a laptop, on phones, at a television, that I'm just like that for me for a couple hours Saturday, a couple hours every night, if I'm able to pull away, I'm just like, I can just stare at like parchment or not parchment, but paper and just look at something that's not a screen. And it's just kind of awesome for me. I'm curious as we've kind of talked a lot about stories and storytelling and we were talking a little bit about some of the stories that you've worked on be it the durant thing or uh the mike zimmer story that you wrote this offseason where you went to spend some time in the offseason with the vikings head coach is there what story you may be most proud of in your career that that you look at man my whole career yeah or just my vikings time coming i mean i mean your whole career like is there the story that really you're just like that to me that's it. Like if I want somebody to read me and remember me for a story I wrote, it's that one. Huh? God, that's a hard one. Um, I, I mean, I have a few that are kind of like my go-to that would be on like, you know, my resume. Um, back in, back in right before signing day in 2016, it was actually right before I left California, right before I left for California, I did a story on, uh, it's kind of an investigative piece on the cost of recruiting. And I looked at a kid who was going like a high level D1 talent um, and who went to Ole Miss. I looked at a mid-tier kid who was either going to get a one double A offer, swack off, like an HBCU swack offer, um, kid whose parents uh, who had no offers and was kind of like, you know, trying to get as much exposure as, as possible. And the reason I enjoyed doing it, that story was like finding – like no, there's no real cost analysis that you can place on what it costs to get recruited. It's not just, Oh, if you're so good, they'll find you. Well, there's camps, there's, you know, there's the Nike NFTC circuit. There's, you know, the opening, there's all these things. Well, who the hell is paying for it? Like, I mean, that to me was just like such a, you know, the seven, and seven like that stuff is ridiculous. It's so expensive. Um, and I wanted to kind of dive into something that I had never heard anybody talk about. It's like, how do these kids, especially when you think about a lot of the kids in Mississippi, like, you know, come from rural, poor areas, how are they affording to go to six camps in a summer um, to get exposure? And I mean, yeah, like, is the school paying for it? Are there boosters paying for it? Is there some illegal stuff like, you know, legal by NCAA standard stuff going on behind the scenes? I mean, I think it was a really fascinating look at just kind of the cost. It is expensive to be a division one recruit no matter what level, just to be able to get exposure. So that's one of them. Um, gosh, I think with the Vikings, I mean, the Zimmer story this, this off season was, was a really cool experience to get to go down and see Mike in his uh, environment in um, Northern Kentucky. Uh, that was a really great one. Um, what else? I mean, gosh, you're, you're putting me on a spot here. I totally hey, forgot. Two, like, I was going to say, those are two really good ones. Uh, the recruiting one, so I covered high schools for really until I came up to Michigan in 2009. So like the first decade or so 
lesson of my career. And one of the stories I did early on was I actually went with a club volleyball team to a tournament in Vegas. This was at my first job. And I did not realize how intense that was and how much it costs. And like you have the parents who were like, I need my kid to get exposure and play all three of these matches because they, otherwise they won't get a scholarship and we're paying you for this. And I was just like, whoa, like, hold on. Like you're, you're putting way too much hope in this, but it's the only way for them to do it. And that's a sport like volleyball, let alone, you know, the high stakes that football comes in. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like it's, uh, it's such, it's expensive to be an athlete in today's like high school world because like the exposure you're paying for uh, with these club teams and just these travel is just, I mean, it, you better have some money if you're going to have your kids, if you're going to have your kids play one sport, if not multiple sports, like a lot of kids do nowadays. Oh yeah, there's no doubt. So I'm going through your Instagram. I do this last week with Rob. I did the same thing and I found his very, very short lived Rob Domoski PGA Twitter account, which was just consistent and consisting of, him tweeting about people driving off tees and putting at it was like the PJ championship way when Twitter started, which was pretty funny. And he also tried to say he wasn't a good golfer anymore and then shot a 74 whistling straights. He was kind of surprised I found that. So are you guys still obsessed with Air Force Ones or like where's your shoe game at these days? Um, I got a new pair of Air Maxes. Uh, the last pair I would have bought was right be- right after cutdown day. I got a re- really cool camouflage pair from this nice boutique uh, that's right up the road. Actually, a bunch of Vikings players go to it, um, and I know the owner. And I was just like, I need a new, I need new something. So I got these, and um, I love them. They're so comfortable. Uh, but yeah, I mean, my shoe game is still something I really love. I think it's uh you know it's a unique part about me like I'd rather wear that than you know anything super fancy I mean sometimes you can get away with it sometimes you can't but um you know it's hard up here in the winter when you have a foot of snow for three straight months if not longer to wear your kicks outdoors so now is the time where I really try to buy into that and uh you know get myself so you have like one crappy pair of shoes like for the winter and then you basically rotate through everything else throughout the rest of the year or like if it's if like something gets scuffed then you were like you know what those now become winter shoes like is that how you roll in Minnesota at this point yeah that, that's that's part of it I think that um I still have like my first pair of J's that I bought uh in 2013 and they're scuffed up but I still wear them like I still wear them you know pretty regularly but you know it's, if it's gonna rain and it was kind of a rainy day today like I like just wore some crappy slip-ons that uh, I don't mind getting ruined by the rain. How many pairs do you have at this point? I think I'm upwards of around 35, somewhere in that in that realm. So we all know that some players, be it NBA players, NFL players, are big nice sneakerheads. Like, do you use that when you're talking to players? When you're being like, like if you see a guy being like, oh, you know what? I saw him wear like different pairs of Jordans, like three different times you know in like two weeks you just say hey like what's up with that like and try to make that connection that way because we both know this job is so much about relationships and connections like do you is that like a helpful thing is did you feel like when maybe you got the Vikings locker room or maybe when you were bouncing between beats in California that you were yeah 
Yeah, I think I think it's helped before. I mean, like I typically wear shoes, and people are like, "Oh, you're nice shoes." I'll be like, "Thanks." And then we, it starts a conversation. Um, I actually, you know, get to learn about guys and kind of what their hobbies are. Like Jaleel Johnson, who's a rotational uh, defensive tackle up here. I mean, he's a huge sneakerhead, and he actually shops at one of the same boutiques that I do. Um, and it's just a cool way to kind of connect with people, learn about them off the field and what they might be interested in. And I do think that, you know, the more you can connect away from the game of football itself, uh, the better you're going to be as a storyteller and reporter because they're people just like we are. I mean, they've got interests, they've got a lot of hobbies, like, um, and it's more than just, you know, the sport that they play and get paid for. And that's a good lead into kind of the last segment that we do with our featured guests every week, which is a bunch of rapid fire questions. And here we go. Person in history you most want to meet. Person in history I'd most like to meet. Um, probably Mother Teresa. What's your pregame routine if you have one? Um, I like to go for a run or exercise if I'm on the road or home uh, before the game. I always like to get a workout in. Is it like, do you have like a specific thing like Orange Theory or Soul Cycle or like just run or does it depend where you are? I do, I do belong to Orange Theory, but it's hard on Sunday mornings, especially if there's a noon game because the earliest class here is 7.30 and I like to get to the stadium by 9. So I typically just run on Sundays downstairs in the gym. Best 90s musician. What was that? Best 90s musician. Um, I used to be a huge Dave Matthews fan uh, a long time ago. It was my past life. So I'll say that, I mean, Third Eye Blind is one of my favorite 90s bands of all time. So that's what I'll go with. We actually saw them together a couple of years ago at Bunbury. Along with uh, that's true. Our, our that's true. Yeah, they were really good that day. Actually, it was actually nice out. Steve they were Jacob wonderful. Played well, better yes. food, Chicago or Minneapolis? I think Chicago. There's just a lot more variety there. Your seminal sports moment? Oh man, I think Game Five of the of the World Series in 2016. I got to go as a fan. Because uh, the Raiders were in Florida and the 49ers were on a bye week. Um, and I went home for games three, four, and five. And they lost games three and four. And I woke up at my brother's apartment on Sunday morning. We were, like, looking at StubHub. And it's like, hey, tickets are down, like, 30% for bleachers. Do you want to go? And it was still about $1,000, the most I've ever spent on a sporting event and will spend on a sporting event. Um, and it was just, I mean, it was just amazing. Because that year I covered my first NBA Finals. Um you know, I covered, you know, a few games of the Stanley Cup final when they were in Pittsburgh. And then when they were back in the Bay Area, I was going back and forth. Um, and still, like, nothing compared to what I saw at Wrigley Field uh, that day. And it was just so incredible. And last question, the bucket list place you still want to travel to? I would really like to go to Croatia. I was out, uh, we did a European adventure this summer, and that was one that was not on the list. And if I go back to Europe next summer, that will definitely be part of it. Cool. Well, Courtney, thank you for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And uh, I will see you this weekend. Yeah, thanks so much. Super fun. Awesome. Thanks again. now 
now a break for our sponsor, Regents Field, Ann Arbor's true sports bar at 204 Main Street in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Come on by to enjoy some great food, including some gluten-free options, drink specials, and check out free ski ball and darts as well. You may hear the ski ball in the back of this podcast. You can also record a podcast of your very own here too. Check out regentsfield.com or find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at regentsfield. And now, back to our show. show is going to be listener questions from you want to hear your question answered on a future show use the hashtag roth show on twitter or email me at michael rothstein the letter d and the letter m at gmail.com now on to this week's questions first question comes from major dixon cider otherwise known as at a.o kane on twitter how do you feel the rotating of guards is working? I think it ruins the chemistry of the starters. Also, Kenny Wiggins is and has been one of the worst-ranked guards of the past three seasons. I can't imagine he helps anything. This has been one of my biggest questions when it comes to the Lions at this point. If you follow me on Twitter, which you all clearly do, and for anyone who doesn't, I'm at Mike Rothstein on Twitter. Every time they make a rotational change, pulling Joe Doll or Graham Glasgow for Kenny Wiggins, I mention it, and then I kind of chart to see what happens, and it generally has not gone well. Matt Patricia says he wants to play all three guys. I thought maybe it would be a first few weeks of the year thing, maybe even through the bye, but now that they're past the bye and they're still doing the rotation of guards, I just don't have an answer, and I, I don't think the players do either. I've asked, and they all say very diplomatic things when I've inquired about it. Kenny Wiggins is a decent player he's a guy that you want as your backup rotational guy who can fill in as a starter in a pinch you saw that last year but you gave Joe Jolla an extension for a reason and he's played fairly well Graham Glasgow is an average to above average starting guard he's also incredibly reliable for you and he's coming up in a contract year so I don't really understand why they are not playing Graham Glasgow as much as possible and playing with Joe Dahl too it's just something I wish I had a better answer. I just don't think there is one, at least publicly, that they're willing to share. And it's not something that has ever really made sense to me because it's a very planned rotation as well. It's not like, hey, they're going with the hot hand. It's, I think it's the third or fourth series they pull Glasgow and then they pull Dahl the series after that. And then it goes back to normal and they do it in the first half and the second half. And it's been like that for weeks now. It's just something I don't really get. By now, you have a veteran like Wiggins who should be able to come in in a pinch, and you have other guys who are very, very comfortable there in their positions. It just doesn't make sense to me at this point, and especially on a position like offensive line where chemistry is so important and reps together are so important, messing that up just doesn't make any sense to me, and I'll be curious to see if it keeps happening going forward. As we were talking about with Courtney earlier, this pass rush has always gotten to Matthew Stafford, and I would think you'd want to stick with your top five. Again, that's just me going into this week against the Vikings. Jason Russell at J Russell MI on Twitter asks, should the Lions blitz more often? I was surprised to hear on last night's broadcast, their defense does man-to-man coverage more than any other, every other team and blitzes less than every other team. That's just a Matt Patricia defense. If you go back and look, very rarely does he blitz on more than 10% of an opponent's dropbacks. He really likes to rely on his coverage. And man coverage has worked for him. It's very similar to what they do in New England, which is not a surprise because that's where he brought his defense from. 
but they like to really rely on man. And you can do that when you have a player like Darius Slay, when you have safeties like Quandre Diggs and Tracy Walker, and before that, Glover Quinn, although Glover didn't have the best final year of his career. And what they're getting out of Rashawn Melvin right now makes it palatable for them to be able to play man-to-man defense, especially with what Justin Coleman, who we talked about in the first segment, and how he has played. So it's not surprising that they're going with a lot of man-to-man. I think they've built their team to be able to do that. And the blitz, I don't really know why they don't really try to blitz as much. You saw a couple of times that they did blitz against Aaron Rodgers. It didn't necessarily go well. One in particular, it was obvious they were blitzing. I think they sent five, maybe six, and everyone got picked up. Maybe you do it if you're Matt Patricia because it lends to more of an element of surprise. And I think it might depend on the week and depend on the quarterback because we all know Matt Patricia is very matchup-based, and they've played some really good quarterbacks the past few weeks, Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers. And most people know by now if you blitz Patrick Mahomes, he's going to shred you. So by not blitzing him, you make him have to read coverage. And if you're making Patrick Mahomes do that, you're probably doing that with most quarterbacks. I think that's the strategy behind it. But it wouldn't shock me if – as they get further into the season and they play some other quarterbacks, including maybe like a Kirk Cousins this week, if you see a little bit more blitzing from the Lions because they certainly have the defensive line depth to do it and they have some pretty good rushers in the linebacker spot between Jared Davis when he's been a pass rusher and obviously Devon Kennard. So that's it, episode two of the Michael Rothstein Show in the books. You can read my guest Courtney Cronin on ESPN.com and follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Courtney R. Cronin. You can read me at ESPN.com as well, and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and apparently TikTok, which I'm still learning, at Mike Rothstein, on Facebook, at Michael Rothstein Journalist, and on my travel blog at michaelrothstein.net. Obviously, also read me, as I mentioned before, at ESPN.com. Thanks to Regents Field for hosting this podcast. Come on by, enjoy some great food, some gluten-free options, drink specials, check out the skee-ball and the darts. Come watch sports, and you can record a podcast of your very own here, too, if you want. Check out RegentsField.com or find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at RegentsField. Thanks to my producer, Matt Leach. And don't forget, if you like what you hear, give us a positive review on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or anywhere else you choose to listen to your podcast. We'd love your feedback as we continue to grow this show. See you next week.